biblical authors themselves dismissive of women? Are, are the biblical authors down on women in some way? And, and the attitude is expressed well in this um, quotation by Alan Bloom, who's a classics professor. Alan Bloom puts it this way, quote, all literature up to today is sexist. The muses never sang to the poets about liberated women. It's the same old chanson from the Bible and Homer through Joyce and Proust, unquote. You see what he's saying there. It's just like all literature. The Bible is in the same way. It's this patriarchal book, and it's misogynistic. It's down on women. I want to I try to address that head-on with you today. And I want to ask you a question, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. So those, those of you who have been with me all weekend might be sick of me asking you questions. Uh, but we're going to do it a little bit more here. I ask you to bear with me. I want you, I'm, I realize I'm, I'm probably talking to a, a group of uh, general Bible readers. So I, wanna, I want you to raise your hand if you know who Hannah is in the Bible, the biblical character Hannah. Please raise your hands very high, very high up. Okay, and just look around there. Okay. Up, up, all the way. I want you to see. Okay, thank you. Now, um, I want you to raise your hand if you, if I could call on you, you could tell me who Elkanah is in the Bible. I want you to raise your hand. Not pastors. Not, no, <laughs> pastors' wives. Okay, one, two, three, four, maybe, maybe five. Okay, I want you to see that. Do you, do you notice the difference there? You know who the husband is, but you don't know who the wife is. You have a couple. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Always good to have Mary Kay here helping me out. I meant the opposite there. Um, you know who the wife is. You don't know who the husband is in a couple. All right? And I, I would say that's significant. Is the Bible really dismissive of women? Are, are women not prominent in the Bible? Let's think about that as we open the book of Samuel together. This is a book about the covenant of dynasty coming on the earth. It's a, it's, it's an enormous change that's happening in the world when God is bringing his kingdom to earth. And finally, he has the elements of the kingdom set up. He has a land, he has a people, he has a law, and he is bringing about kingship for his covenant people, righteous rule through all generations. It's a crucial time. The, the earth is shifting. The history is moving into some new phase, a crucial time. And this story begins with a woman. It's interesting to me that in this, is this seismic shift that God is bringing, the first player in the drama is a woman. It's Hannah. And she is the one who comes forth to bring the kingmaker. She gives birth to the kingmaker. The covenant starts with her. She gives birth, really, to the institution of kingship in Israel. And she does it in more ways than one. Let's read um, from 1 Samuel 1 and 2. We have selection, uh, selected some passages here in the interest of time from this beginning, the beginning of the book, 1 Samuel 1 and 2. And what I want to ask you to do, I ask you to bear with me. I ask you to stand while we read. I like to distinguish between God's word and my word. So if you would please stand, if you're able to, as we read. And let's begin in verse 24 of 1 Samuel 1. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ff of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. 
Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. Then she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his house in Ramah, But the child ministered before the Lord, before Eli the priest. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child wearing a linen ephah. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Make yourself comfortable. So how important is a woman to what God is doing? You know, if you want to find out what's going to happen in the book of Samuel, you turn to this prayer. You come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, what's sometimes called the song of Hannah or the prayer of Hannah, because she tells us beforehand what's going to be happening during the next 100, 150 years, this period of time we're talking about. The book of Samuel It covers about 1120 B.C. to 970 B.C., Okay, so you have about a century and a half here of events. And her song kind of tells us 
these things that are going to be happening. If you go through them, you could just see it quickly. Verse 1, she, she's going to boast at her enemy. Well, she's, um, her, who's her enemy? Is her rival wife. And she's been mistreated by this woman. And now she gets to boast at her enemy because she's having these children. Uh, verse 2, the Lord is holy. You know, you go through the book of Samuel, there's one thing you learn. It's that God is holy and sovereign. Verse 3, he weighs the actions of the arrogant. Watch out, Eli's sons. Watch out, Saul. Even watch out, David, as you become arrogant. Your actions are being weighed. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty man or the warriors are broken. Who are the ones with the bows in the book? It's the Philistines, the mighty Philistines. And what do we see happen over this next time period? Their power is broken. Their bows are absolutely broken from for the forever in Palestine. The power of the Philistines goes down, right? Those who stumble are armed with strength. Who stumbles in the book of Samuel? It's David who tries on to put on Saul's armor and he stumbles around. He can't move. And, and yet God girds him with strength to slay the giant Goliath, right? Verses five through eight, you have this reversal of fortunes. The hungry he fills, the, the rich he sends away empty, right? Begging. And you see that in the book, all, all through the book, there are these reversal of fortunes that happens. Eli goes down as David goes up, as Samuel goes up, right? Saul goes down as David goes up. Different reversals of fortune. Even verse six, where it says, he brings to the grave and raises up. Well, who does he bring to the grave in, in this book? Actual, actually, Hannah's own child, Samuel. We see him grow up. We see the life of Samuel. And then he dies in the book of Samuel. He's brought down to the grave. And after he dies, we turn around, and there's Samuel again. In the book, he's somehow come back from the grave. He's raised up from the grave. So there it's happening. This is sort of like a table of contents uh, for the book of Samuel. It's like an index. You want to know what's going to happen? You turn to, to Samuel, to uh, Samuel's mother here, Hannah, and her prophetic song. Amazingly prophetic. In fact, it's uh, a reason why many non-believing scholars look at this passage and they date it to a later period. They say this couldn't come from this period, Hannah's period, the period of the historical figure, Hannah. It has to come from a later period. They like to say, oh, it was written during the exile, and then it was read back into Hannah's mouth, right? And that's, that's the way they like to read it, especially because you look in verse 8, she hints at it. She says the, the princes there, seated with princes. In verse 10, she's explicit. He gives strength to his king. You see that in verse 10? She's talking about king, the king of the Lord. Well, there's no king in Hannah's time. There's, there's no king happening yet. That's from, that's from a later period um, that's going to happen in the book. But it's nothing happening about kingship now, right? And so people say, well, it must be from a later period. It must be a later period. It's read back into her mouth in the narrative. The problem with that theory, friends, is that stylistically, this is from Hannah's period. This is Iron Age one material. The labels that are used, the titles, and the names that are used in the prayer, it's definitely from her historical time period. So the only reason really you would say this has to be from a later period is if you are handicapped by unbelief. Rather, I would tell you that what we have here is an extraordinary prophecy. This woman, this woman had insight into history. She was prophetic. And what we're getting from Hannah is her understanding of what Yahweh was doing in the world at that time. 
Here is the voice of the woman telling us what's really going to go down. She understood that Yahweh is going to break oppression here. He's going to bring a revolution uh, on the elites. He was going to raise up the poor. He's going to craft a king. So that is the woman's voice here. And I would say that, you know, you don't have to just take Hannah. You could take a step back with me and you look at the whole book of Samuel. And what we find is that the most, most important themes of the book, the most important messages of the book, they come through the voice and the, and the mouths of women. And you could give different examples of where this happens. Some of the most important things that are said in the book, whether it's when, Paul, when Saul goes and consults the, the medium, important message that comes through her, whether the wise woman of Tekoa, um, who is, is responsible for bringing back the estranged prince into the land, or Abigail, we mentioned over the weekend, who gives us the promise, the main promise of the book, or even Bathsheba later on, uh, who, who is the one who ensures the rightful heir to the king, to the, to the throne after David dies, right? And, uh, you know, there's this woman, um, Phineas's wife, who, uh, while she is giving birth, <laughs> while she is giving birth, actually gives the message that's needed for Israel at that time, that the glory of the Lord is departing from Israel. And she names her child Ichabod because you know, a lot of strange things were happening at that time. You wouldn't know what was going on. If you were in Israel, you'd be like, well, what's going on? Um, she was giving us the interpretation there. The needed word for the hour came through this woman while she is giving birth. Now, I don't know if you've ever given birth, but... It's kind of distracting, right? This is not a time when you want to be commenting on what's going on in the world. I, I, there was this woman in our church who was about to have a baby. She was uh, very, very far along. We knew, everybody kind of knew it was going to happen this week. And so I said to her the week before, I said, listen, while you're in labor, you want to tell us what's going on with the country? <laughs> she was like, no, I don't. You know, there is a... A lot of other things on your mind. Yet this one, while she's giving birth, she is telling us the needed word. This, this, this is woman in the Bible. I just want you to understand that. Now you might make an argument to me and you say, well, yeah, but, you know, so there are these different women, but there are still more men in the narrative than women. Men have a more prominent place in the narrative. I just want you to know the Bible doesn't do it that way. It doesn't say, well, let's, let's establish this equal parity. So that there's an equal number here, an equal number there. That's not the way the Bible establishes the importance of women. What the Bible does is have women come at just the needed time and give us the important word. The prophetic word comes uh, through the mouths of these women. And so I would, I would give you another quote. This is from another professor. This guy is R Gary Rensberg is his name. He's a professor of ancient Jewish history. And this is the way he puts it. Quote, open your Bible at random and you will notice something striking. Female characters abound. And it's not simply a lot of women. It's a lot of strong women. These women are the antithesis of what we might expect from a patriarchal society. They're not passive, demure, timid, goes on, but they're active, they're bold, they're fearless, they're assertive. They are also not what we would expect based on contemporaneous Near Eastern literature in which women generally do not play leading roles in the narrative, unquote. So I think he nails, I think Rensburg nails it here with, with what I see in the Bible, the Bible that I read. And so we have in our story today, 
this woman, Hannah, giving birth to the kingdom. But, and more than that, through her words, she's interpreting one of the biggest changes in history for the guys. Okay, so we need to reckon with that. What does this mean to us as men? How should we hear this? Like, what is the text, text asking us as men? I want to apply that for us. I think the question that the text is asking us is, do we have that voice, that feminine voice, in the way that we conduct our households, in the way that we conduct our families, our churches? Are we walking in a way that acknowledges the Spirit's work through women? And we can ask this individually and corporately, individually as men. Are we listening? Are we making eye contact with our sisters as they are talking to us, understanding the importance of their opinion? Are we listening as husbands? You know, I know this is the struggle for men as husbands, is to keep listening. Are we continuing to listen? Did we listen maybe before, but now we're not listening? This is important, friends, because if you don't do this, if you have a culture of, of dismissing women, then don't be surprised if in a generation or two, you have women who afford no distinction to men in their lives. There's no place of leadership for men in their lives. Don't be surprised you have daughters looking at the situation and growing up saying, you know what? I'm not going to have that. That's not going to be in my life. Because that's what you'll get. This is crucial for us to hear this message from the Bible, from the Bible about women. And corporately, we want to ask the question. You know, one of the reasons I, I was so happy to come down here, take part in this, this forum that we're doing, is because of the respect that I bear Christ the King as a church, who's really tried to, tried to do this. I know Jeff and, and Susan are always thinking about this, about how it is that we can bring about a partnership of men and women in ministry. And so you have your, your women's council, which I did actually in a church. I know how difficult, I know the obstacles to doing that. And yet you're doing it. And the elders are doing it because they so value having the feminine voice in their decision-making. So you have this women's council here. I really have great respect for you. There are other ways to do that, but there are ways for the church to do more in this area, making sure we're, we're providing venues that prepare women in this, uh, in this in, and kind of cultivate this feminine prophetic. You know, I use that term, you know, we are in the PCA, so I'm prophetic, quote unquote. Uh, not that I believe prophets are running around now, but there is the prophetic. The Holy Spirit is still working, and he's still working um, in this way through women and their voices. So I really value thing, uh, these organizations like the Simeon Foundation who provide um, they do seminars, they do workshops to help both men and women in, in teaching the Bible. Very important to develop that calling. Are we seeking the prophetic feminine in our lives? Are we calling that forth? Okay, so that's half the story. The other half of the story is the man-child who is brought forth to be the kingmaker. It wasn't a daughter that was brought forth. Specifically, it was the son to make kingship happen. And one way to interpret the derivation of Samuel's name, the etymology, is asked of God or heard of God. Because Hannah was heard by God when she asked for Samuel. 
And, and Samuel heard from God when God spoke. And that's what the story goes on to tell us. We read on in chapter 3. Uh, the man-child hears for God, from God for Israel. God chooses to direct the covenant community affairs through the guy. And then as the guy grows, as this man grows in stature, he is to apprehend the mission, which is to make a kingdom in which women could flourish. And Samuel rises to this occasion for the women. Okay. And if we take a step back like we did with Hannah and look at men more generally in the Bible, we find that God, God makes this distinction for men in the Bible. He gives men this call. For example, he only calls men to be priests in Israel's history. And you can trace this. It's a long history of 2,000 years. You think about 2,000 years, only sons of Aaron to be priests. Only men are called to be priests, not, not women, no priestesses. Now, why is that? We need to reckon with that in the scriptures. We need to understand this long history of this. Now, you, might, you might say, you sometimes hear the argument that the reason why is because they were so patriarchal. It was just the way that they were. And, you know, those olden times, they just, that's the way they did things back then. And it was, they were just really set in their ways. And that, you know, um, God couldn't really break that. He had to wait till a time where, you know, we could be more progressive. But if, uh, if God, the idea is that they have a hardness in their hearts, maybe you could say it that way, have a hardness of the hearts. But if God had really had his druthers, he would have had women priests. You know, and that's really the, the, the argument that you hear, don't you? The problem with that argument, friends, is that it is exactly wrong. <laughs> it's exactly wrong. How do I know this? Because Greece had female priests. Because Egypt had female priests. Because Mesopotamia had, had female priests. Even, even ancient Syria had female priests. That was the culturally ex expected thing to do in your cultic system, to have priestesses. In fact, Susan Ackerman, of, uh, head of ASOR, she recently put out a book, um, published a book, in which she shows how even Israel's closest neighbors, um, those of Phoenicia and the Transjordan cultures, they had priestesses. So it turns out you could just go wherever you would turn, bump in the ancient world over this long history, you would have female priests, not in Israel. Why? Okay. It's not for cultural reasons that kind of they were oppressed in the patriarchy because women priests were expected, but not in Israel. It's not because of gifting. It's not because women couldn't do these things, but because of something God wanted to do in the covenant community, in the relationships between the brothers and sisters in his holy people. And he wanted to call men to stand before and, and represent the people before the all-consuming fire and it was an all-consuming fire through that long history. So when we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus constituting the new people of God, and he chooses his disciples, he chooses his 12 apostles, he chooses men. And you say, well, 
where did that come from? It didn't just drop out of the sky. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's reconstant. You know, that number 12 is very important. Why 12 apostles? Because there were 12 tribes in Israel. And Jesus Christ is reconstituting the people of God. He is saying, here is the new Israel. And if there were a time to introduce reform into the people of God, if there were a time to say, okay, now let's be progressive, it would be then. Because Jesus is saying, now we're setting up the people of God. And yet he chooses 12 men. Could have chosen women. There were plenty of women traveling with Jesus. They had a whole traveling band, a lot of women traveling with Jesus. He doesn't. He chooses the men to stand and represent in this place of fire. How come? How come? We need to reckon with that. It's because God wanted something for the brothers to do for the women, to create a community in which women could flourish. And so this is why we have what we have in the New Testament, various kind of prescriptions, various times where men are distinguished for certain callings that God has for them. One time I was asked by a single guy, you know, how can I grow as a man? And he was not married, didn't have marriage in, uh, on the horizon. And, you know, churches draw these lines differently. In our uh, particular church, we have guys who do the liturgy. And I said to him, you know what you need to do? You need to, you need to lead in the liturgy. You need to take that step. <clears throat> Even though he didn't kind of consider himself like that, doing that kind of thing. I said, you need to do this because as you take that step to lead us into worship, to represent us in that way, you will be thinking about your sisters. And that's what's going to make you more of a man, is to be taking responsibility for the sake of your sisters. And he did. He took that step forward. And you talk to him today, you know, he looks back and says, that was an important step for him as a man to do. So we're living in great times now. You know, I don't want to, it's easy for what I'm saying to be misinterpreted. We're in great times where women have opportunities to lead in the body politic, in the marketplace, of which I think the Bible would approve based on what I see in it. These are good things uh, for women in their gifting. And also in the covenant community, he calls us to love each other differently in this way. So what does that mean for us as women? What is, that, what is the text asking us to reckon with as women? And I would say that it is, it is to call forth the men in our lives, to get the mission for the family, to get the mission for your, for your marriage, to be, to be kingmakers for the women in their lives. And I would encourage you women not to take that from the guys. Don't take that from them in your heart. Because what happens, see, what, what, just like what, what guys can give to women in bringing forth a prophetic voice, can, you can do so much for women. In the same way, you can do so much for guys in calling them forth to be kingmakers. And what we see happening in the wider culture is, is kind of the opposite of that. Right? What we see happening in the wider culture is, is the obliteration of gender distinction, right? Well, if you do that in a culture, if you obliterate gender distinction, then don't be surprised 
Don't be surprised if in a generation or two, you have unmotivated, unambitious, sitting on the couch, responsibility shirking men filled up in your lives. You know, I was just reading in the New York Times, they had this, <clears throat> they had this piece on men, the state of men. This is in the, in the Times. They said, here's what's going on with men in America. They found out that in 2014, more young men, kind of unprecedented in history, more young men are living with parents than with a wife or partner. One out of three guys with just a high school diploma, if you took your education to just that level, one out of three of those men, we're talking about 10 million men, have left the labor force. Okay? They're simply not working. One out of every five fathers no longer is living with his, his children. Three out of every four, what they call deaths of desperation, that is, you know, death by suicide or drug overdose. Three out of every four of those are men. This is what's going on in the larger culture. It doesn't have to go on with you. You know, there was a wife who, um, who was kind of getting this, came to me recently and asked me, how do I call my husband to take more spiritual responsibility in, in our home without being a nag? You know, and I know this woman, she's very kind, she has a very take charge kind of personality. She could do it. She could do it herself, you know, very competent person. And I just looked at her and I said, God bless you, you know, because she gets it. She realized there's something else that needed to happen in their relationship, right? So she's coming to me and she says, well, how, can, how do I do this without being a nag, you know? And I said, you can do it. It's easy, actually. Just start asking questions. Just start asking and say, honey, you know, what do you think needs to happen here in this situation? Honey, what, what do you think needs our children, uh, this situation with our kid that we're dealing with? What would you do in this situation? How would you handle this? I'd really like to know what you think about what's needed here. Start to help him feel the responsibility that he should be feeling, right? So this is what I think the text is asking us to do. Call forth the men in our lives uh, to be kingmakers. And you're saying, well, I don't want to take responsibility for the spiritual failures of the men in my life. They're not, that's not my fault. It's right. It's, it's not your fault. You have men who are, who are failing around you spiritually. It's not your fault. Okay? But we are not independent. Our, our genders are a gift for the other gender. And there's, there's much we can do to help one another. Uh, in, our, in our development as men and as women. Okay. And I would say this one other thing here, offer this uh, to you, because I know that for some of us, this, this really, we just cannot get past this. It's like it feels like it assaults our equality as equal image bearers of God, which I was talking about over the weekend. You are equal as a woman in your value before God. And yet you feel like if there is something that a man is being, that God calls a man to do, he's not calling a woman to do in the covenant community. Like somehow that just assaults your equality. And I would suggest to you that it does not have to, if you know your importance before God. 
You say, well, you, you just do not know what it feels like. You're not a woman. You don't know what it feels like to be the person who's equal and yet asked to surrender prerogative on a daily basis, day by day. And I would say, <clears throat> actually, I think I do. I think I do know something of that. Now, I'm not a woman, okay? I've never been a woman. I have no plans to become a woman um, here. But, and so I, I, I freely admit I do not know all of the experiences of the woman. I know there are some, some really bad experiences of the woman that you may be having your history. Experiences of, of limitation. But in this little area, I can tell you, in this one area of being an equal, asked to, asked to surrender prerogative, I, I can relate to that somewhat because what I am is an associate pastor. When I stepped into this role of associate pastor, I knew that my job, part of, big part of my job description, was to not be in charge. And I really knew this because I had been in charge. I, was, I had been a lead pastor of a church. I've been a senior pastor of a church. I've had pastoral staff report to me. And I knew when I stepped into this role as, a, as an associate pastor that it was part of my job. Actually, what I was there to do was to lift up and promote the senior pastor and his vision. And that's what I set about doing. It wasn't because I couldn't do, I couldn't uh, be in the position of being in charge. I just knew that that wasn't what I was called to for the sake of the mission. And so what happened was, uh, I was very clear on this, but there were times when just because I'm a person made in the image of God, there were certain things that were important to me. And I would bring them to my senior pastor because submitting, that's part of what submitting means. It doesn't mean being a doormat in the Bible. It means you're part of the equation. You bring your whole self to the equation. And so I brought these things to my senior pastor. And sometimes he would, he would go with them. Sometimes he would adjust a little. Sometimes he would say, you know what? This is not how we're going to go. This is not what we're going to do. Sometimes I would cock my head and I'd say, you know, I look at what he's doing. I wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> no. But I submitted because that was what I was called to be doing. I'll tell you what really helped me in those situations. They didn't happen a lot because we were pretty much on the same page. We wanted the same thing. We wanted people's health uh, and growth in the church. So we were going in the same direction. But there were times when that happened. When it happened, what really helped me, it helped me that he valued, that he listened to me. That helped. That he valued the gifts that I brought. That was a help. But it also really helped me to know that I was called to not be in charge. That helped me because then I could say, you know what? I understand. I've done what I can here. The rest is up to God. It allowed me to trust God, is what I'm saying. It allowed me to trust God for the outcome. I could say, you know what? It's not my call. And I could submit because I love my senior pastor. And, and that's why I wanted to do it. I wanted his vision to succeed. I wanted to promote him. All of this gender stuff is always about relationship. right? So in this case, doesn't, I, doesn't need to assault my equality. In fact, it enriched my relationships. So I offer that to you as you call your men in your life to be kingmakers. Now, let me come back one more time to this story as we come to the end of the story. The reason that 
this whole story of the book of Samuel, the covenant could come on the earth, is because of what Hannah did. She gave birth. She was given this miracle of this child. You know, every child is a miracle. Every time there's a birth, it's miraculous. It's extraordinary. But sometimes when we have trouble, some of us who have trouble, we know, especially, we really know it's a miracle when it happens. And she was, that was Hannah's situation. She was given this miracle. Right? And what does she do? In verses 20 through 27, she turns around and gives the child to the Lord. And she knew she had to do that for the kingdom to come. And really, every mother, if you're a mother, you know you have to enter into this same drama of giving the child to the work that God has for the child. Give the child back to the Lord in a way. Because if Hannah hadn't given up Samuel, he wouldn't have become prophet in the central arena. And the wickedness of the priesthood would have continued, and there would be no one to anoint the king and guide the tribes into a monarchy. And so this mother's sacrifice gives weight to her words that goes beyond, stretches even beyond that 150-year period to another anointed and another Hannah. We meet her in Luke chapter 2. We meet Anna. It's usually translated Anna in the New Testament, but it's the same name, Anna, Anna. And, and she's a prophetess in the temple. Well, you know, Hannah, it says in verse 5, she says, the barren has born seven. And uh, that's really interesting because we, we find out that Hannah, who is the barren one, she bears other children besides Samuel. And the author is very particular about telling us how many in verse 21. You see that? Ha Samuel had other brothers and sisters, five in fact, right? But five brothers and sisters plus Samuel makes six, only six, implying there's another anointed one to come through another supernatural birth. And we meet that one again in the beginning chapters of Luke. In Luke chapter 2, the, the new prophetess, Anna, Hannah, in the temple, welcomes this seventh child. And right before this, in Luke chapter 1, we get another prayer of the seventh child's mother, the mother of the Messiah, Mary. And she also gives us a song. She gives us a prayer. And she, again, is interpreting the new thing that God is doing on the earth. She is giving us the, the interpretive word, the prophetic word, coming through, again, this mother, Mary. Very similar to Hannah's uh, psalm, actually, if you want to ever compare them. She's giving us a deep interpretation of the new covenant that God is bringing. And then Mary goes through really the same thing that Hannah had to, because Mary then has to turn around and give up this miraculous child for the sake of the kingdom. She does. She gives up this child, Jesus Christ, but it's only she has to do it deep, more deeply than any mother ever has. A sword had to pierce her heart also for the sake of the kingdom. And she knew that she had to in order to bring about true righteousness, the righteous rule through all generations, in order to bring about the true king on the earth. And she does. Because the final king had come, the real king, 
who accomplished our salvation. And that's Jesus. So you see, this is the way God works. He does it again in this way. He accomplishes our very salvation through a very thoroughly gendered story. This is how he apparently likes to work. And it's again, a man apprehending the mission of sacrifice coming through the word and the sacrifice of a woman. I hope that that can inspire us now as we approach the table. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, some of these things difficult, uh, difficult to think about, difficult to think through, but we trust you, Lord. We trust that you are good. You say these things, and if you say them, they're good. Help us to reckon with them in our hearts. Help us to be to one another um, what we see the characters in the scripture are to one another. Help us to be brothers and sisters to one another in the covenant community in a way that brings forth your glory and your truth in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.